This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Evan Lee. I'm a professor here at UC Hastings, and I'm the co-director of this interview series, Legally Speaking, which is a co-production of UC Hastings and the California Lawyer Magazine, where we make the uh, rather immodest claim to have conversations with the most interesting lawyers in the world. Today's most interesting lawyer in the world is somewhat unique in that regard, in that he became one of the most interesting lawyers in the world by blogging about some of those other most interesting <laughs> lawyers in the world. Our guest today is David Latt, who is the managing editor and founder of Above the Law, which is a news and gossip blog about big law, but not just big law, about uh, smaller law firms, law schools, uh, and uh, careers in the law generally. Uh, first of all, welcome, David. No, oh, thanks for having me, Evan. Um, uh, I want to say, uh, I, I want to reel off your impressive list of credentials. Uh, David uh, graduated from uh, Harvard College, Yale Law School, uh, and clerked for Judge O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, he then worked for that very, very famous uh, M&A firm uh, in New York, Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. Is it still called that? Yes, indeed. Okay, uh, for about two and a half years. He then worked as a federal prosecutor and assistant United States attorney under then- U.S. Attorney Chris Christie, now the governor of the state of New Jersey, and potentially a presidential nominee in 2016, depending on how things work out in the next election. Um, and uh, then started blogging uh, for a living. Uh, for a while, you were at Wonkette, which is a major political blog, uh, but you weren't there that long, I don't believe, and then you started Above the Law, yep. which um, was not the first or even second blog you were with, but let's start with that because it's the blog that I think you're most closely associated with, and you're obviously still with it. So how did the idea of Above the Law come about? Uh, so Above the Law is about six years old now. We launched in August of 2006. And at the time, I think the new media landscape was quite different from where it is even today. There were many fewer blogs. And I didn't feel at the time that there was a site covering the legal profession in the way that I envisioned Above the Law doing. Uh, well, I worked at the time for Wonkette, which was a political blog at the time owned by Gawker Media. And so Gawker covered the New York media world, Wonkette 
Blanquette covered inside the Beltway politics. And they covered it in a very fun, engaging, uh, somewhat personality-driven way. And there was a refreshing tone to them. They would have information, of course, but it was presented in a very enjoyable way. And I thought that the legal profession could use a site of that nature. And surveying what was existing at the time, I didn't really feel that the uh, sites that were around at the time, and there were many fewer sites back then than there are today, uh, covered that waterfront. So that's where I essentially came up with the uh, idea for Above the Law. So uh, I... would you characterize above the law as sort of the TMZ of of, of, um, of it's, the legal hmm, that's interesting. or uh, is that an unfair comparison? Well, I don't know. It's interesting. It de- uh, we we might not be as quite as fun to read as TMZ. Um, I think that some of the uh, we also don't have the same kind of resources as they do. Uh, but, uh, TMZ was actually founded by a former uh, practicing lawyer, but uh, I'm digressing a little bit. I think some of the things that we do are somewhat TMZ-ish in terms of covering interesting personalities, uh, what you might call gossip, backstory, intrigue, etc. But then we do a lot of other things that you wouldn't see on TMZ. We cover careers. We offer career advice. We cover news. Uh, granted, it's niche news, but it's news. For example, lateral movement of partners at law firms, which would bore the eyes out of TMZ readers. Uh, so there are some fun stories. that may, Maybe do- not if you publish their compensation. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. perhaps. Uh, that might yeah. be of interest. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's part of it in there. It's somewhat in the DNA, I would say. But at the same time, I think the site over the six years has evolved so that it has that strain, but it does a lot more as well. Is it fair to say that Above the Law is... Uh, most closely associated with big law coverage of big law. I think that's fair. Although, again, to you would like, yeah, you would like we are, you know, we have we're expanding into yeah. in, into the in-house world, right. into small firms. I still do think though that we we try to have our finger on that pulse of large law firms. Absolutely. Well, that's the big glitzy. Yeah, I think partly it is, and also a lot of people have made the point. Uh, for example, Tony Cronman in his book The Lost Lawyer. A lot of people have made the point that in many ways the profession uh, writ large takes many cues from large law firms. So it's not just because of the fact that they make a lot of money or because they are prestigious, but because a lot of the policies and uh, institutions that they uh, set up often find their way into other aspects of the profession. Uh, So in some ways, I think... uh, you, you do learn about the rest of the profession by covering even this very particular part of it. Um, another thing that's interesting about large firms, it's easier to cover them. It's easier to generate a critical mass of audience covering them because in some ways, in-house legal departments and small firms are much more like silos. They kind of worry about what they're doing just on their own. I'm a divorce lawyer in Marin County. I'm a real estate lawyer in Gainesville. I just do my own thing. Whereas the large law firms, the one to 200 of them, they're all interconnected. Partners are moving back and forth. They're competing for the same clients. They are competing for the same recruits. And so if you're trying to tap into an audience that is large enough that you can actually run a commercially viable blog, it helps to actually have those kinds of numbers. What do you think is the biggest evolutionary change that big law has yet to make? That is to say, if you were to come up with one or two things Mm -hmm. that you think big law is going to have to do, and you may not know how they're going to do it, but things that they are going to have to adapt to in order to survive in the market in, let's say, the next 10 years, 
what would you say they were? Oh gosh, I could think of a couple of things. I think that one fundamental thing, if you were to think about it in a very bird's eye view, would just be in general disaggregation, breaking up the different, breaking up the different parts of a suite of services that they used to provide at very high billing rates uh, to a client. So think of it this way: I'm a large law firm, and I have a large corporate client, and I might do a lot of different things for them. For example, I might provide them with high-end counseling on some strategic issue, but then I also might do their document review. And all of that will be billed at hundreds of dollars an hour. The clients are now, they're fine paying a lot of money for the high-end strategic advice. Right. They have a problem with paying three or four or $500 an hour for the document review. And so now that part is getting disaggregated. It's getting broken off and separated. And some of it's being done overseas through outsourcing. Some of it is being done uh, through essentially a domestic kind of outsourcing where vendors and document providers do it. Some of it is being done through technology, through uh, some of the coverage, uh, some of the stuff that we write about on Above Law relates to legal technology as well. But just to be clear, yeah. by, dis- by disaggregation, you don't mean breaking up. No, I'm not firms. saying that you these mean, firms, yeah. You, you mean outsourcing yes. and In other words, compartmentalizing yeah. mm-hmm. tasks. And, and I think that one thing that you're going to see is the firms are going, you're already seeing this somewhat, the firms are already starting to focus on, on fairly uh, high-end work. That is where people will actually be willing to pay those kinds of rates. They aren't as willing to pay the same kinds of rates for work that is much more commoditizable work that really anyone can do or that someone in India could do or that machine could do. Um, Does Does that mean a further shakeout in big law? Does that mean further... shuttering of of large firms? I think that you will see some of that. I think some firms that don't have a strong market identity could falter. Firms that really haven't figured out, well, we're going to be really good at X, and this is the practice area in which we're going to excel. I think you'll see some of that. You're also going to see, and you're already seeing, just a gradual shrinking of firms as well. Uh, We did a survey of our readership recently, and uh, the readers who responded to our survey noted that the size of incoming first-year classes at their firms uh, has decreased by anywhere from 50 to 75 percent. So these firms still exist. The partners are still at these firms. The firms are still very profitable, but there are fewer and fewer entry-level positions so they're at attrating. these firms. Yeah, you could definitely, absolutely. So I think that that sort of is built into what I was talking about earlier with this aggregation. They aren't, they're, you don't need as many bodies to do the same kind of work. But isn't the attrition more than offset by continued mergers and acquisitions of uh, either established or acquisitions of offices around the world and, and perhaps professionals who are not lawyers? Or, 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 or Well, I think that actually going into the professionals that are not lawyers, that's, that's also interesting. I mean, that is another change that I think uh, you are going to see in large law firms. I think you're going to see perhaps a certain, I think you're going to see more diversification in terms of the roles at law firms. The traditional model of a law firm is you have associates and you have partners. You have owners of the business, the partners, and you have aspiring or future owners who are the associates. Now you're starting to see a lot of people who may have long-term positions, and it's no longer an up or out thing where if you're an associate and you don't make partner, you're shown the door. So now you might have staff attorneys, you might have senior attorneys, you might have counsels or of counsels. You might have people who are very good at a very specific practice area who will stay at the firm, who aren't going to be made partner, but who bring a lot of value to servicing clients. Uh, in some ways, you may see large law firms 
firms become a lot more like international accounting firms or management consulting firms where you have many different people who have highly specialized roles and it's not just this binary of associates and partners. Uh, but you had another question and I think it eluded me. I meant to circle back to it. Well, we'll find um, it again <laughs> eventually. But uh, now what you're saying makes me think, well, those firms that you're talking about, the, well, let's say certainly the, the large accounting firms are mega, yeah. mega mm-hmm. firms. Now, if I'm oh, yes, in we're the, talking if about I'm, growth. If I'm in the ballpark, mm-hmm. the largest law firm is DLI Piper. Is that right? I believe, right? you know, they're always, um, in terms of headcount, I think so. But it's, there's always this jockeying. Uh, uh, right. The American right. lawyer recently released their latest tables and they rank them by revenue and they rank them by headcount. But I think you're right, yeah. By headcount, yeah. DLI Piper. And there right. were around 2,200 lawyers, something like that. More than that. Is it, is it, is it bigger than yeah. that? Yeah. Well, uh, after a certain point, you lose count. It might be 2,500. Yeah, yeah 2,500. <laughs> so would your prediction be that the very top uh, law firms, in terms of headcount, mm-hmm. just in terms of headcount, will continue to get larger because they will continue, not because they continue to hire larger classes yeah. of incoming lawyers, but because they continue to merge, yeah. they continue to acquire, they continue to... to That's probably true on a global basis basis. as they expand into emerging markets, etc. But what's strange about these law firms is once they become so large, you then wonder to what extent are we still calling it a law firm and is it much more of a franchise or is it the, you know, this sort of loosely confederated Swiss, I never know how to pronounce this word, Verein structure. There are all kinds of different, it's not quite what you traditionally envision as a law firm anymore. It's, uh, you know, it's almost like McFirm and, you know, here we are in the Tanzania office and uh, it has the branding of the office back in New York, but these partners, if they bumped into each other in the street in Paris, wouldn't even know, wouldn't even recognize each other. Well, what I'm told is that there is this inexorable hydraulic pressure to be able to provide full services, full services globally to your clients, one-stop shopping. You think that's you, you think know, it, that is the pressure, or, um, it, or are there other things involved? It, it depends a lot, actually. I've asked that question to a couple of general counsels I know, and you get different answers. Some of them actually really like it. I was talking to one general counsel for a small, closely held company, and he was saying that has operations in several countries, and he was saying he wants that kind of expertise in different places because he doesn't want to have to explain his business and the issues they face, you know, to ten different play- people and have them essentially bill to learn about your business. On the other hand, a lot of people are suspicious of it. One of our in-house columnists, Mark Herman, who's at uh, Aon, he was talking about how a lot of times the in-house counsel is actually looking for the best type of firm for this type of matter at the best price. And so they're actually somewhat suspicious of efforts to cross-sell because a lot of times they know that the guy in Tanzania doesn't really know the guy in New York. And so if the guy in New York is saying, oh, I have a great guy in Tanzania, how much, of, how much weight are you going to give the recommendation when you know that really these people barely know each other? So that in-house counsel that you're talking about turns to a niche firm? Quite possibly. A niche, a boutique. Some of these boutiques are started by uh, people who used to be at large firms and for whatever reason decided to, that's a trend that you're already seeing, partners at large firms who are very successful going off and starting their own boutiques. Uh, they can have lower overhead, they have fewer conflicts. So let me, let me repeat to you something that uh, a partner, a fairly senior partner at a mega firm said to me recently um, when I asked her the question of what was the future of the legal profession, at least the private practice of law. She said, the mega firms will be fine. And the small niche firms that have really established themselves, this is our identity, Mm -hmm. will be fine. The 
problem is going to be in the mid-size firms that try to be full service yeah. and don't have a unique identity. You agree with that? I would agree with that, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be in politics and name names, but there are a couple of firms, I think you have a couple of firms that are very small and very focused, and they will always get certain uh, highly specialized, high-end work. And then you have these firms that have such global reach that clients that want that kind of service across many different continents will go to those firms. But you might have a couple of firms that say have significant you know, presence in the United States, but don't really have an international footprint and don't have a clearly defined sense of the work that they do, even domestically. And I think those firms are in trouble. So I, I would agree with uh, the person you spoke with about that. Absolutely. Okay. I'd like to come back to uh, above the law in, in, in a moment, but because we have a lot of law students in mm-hmm. the audience um, whose palms are beginning to sweat, <laughs> um, if they weren't sweating when they walked in the room, uh, what? I have uh, interactions with a lot of law students who tell me, uh, when I ask them, um, do you intend to go into big law, their answer is, well, uh, and they usually put their head down at this point, and they kind of say, "Uh, yes, uh, I probably will go into big law for about two or three years so I can pay off my loans, but then I'll get out, then I'll get out. How realistic is that? Well, in terms of what, the getting in or the getting out? Both, and in addition to that, the paying off the loans. Ah, okay. Well, I'll start with the... Let's assume, okay. let's assume loans of uh, $150,000, just to pick a number out of the uh, ether, uh, and in addition to some number of undergraduate loans, which could range anywhere from 25000 to maybe 100000 um, are they going to pay off their loans in two or three years, and are they going to get, be able to get out? I don't think it would be two or three years. I, uh, I'm not a math major, but that's how I wound up in law. But uh, I, I would be surprised if you could pay them off that quickly. I have a lot of friends who are trying to do that, who are in New York and are living a very frugal, lifestyle. They're the people who don't go out on the town a lot and who live in Queens, not Manhattan, and uh, take the subway everywhere. But even they take, I have one friend I'm thinking of in particular, he's not quite done and he's already been at it five years. I don't think two or three, two, two or three years for loans of the magnet you're describing sounds a little, a little fast. Optimistic. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, you could leave that large firm and go to a boutique firm or go in-house and you might still be earning a decent income and over time you might be able to pay off your loan. I mean, of course, remember famously, Barack Obama didn't pay off his student loans until he had a best, two best-selling books, I think. And Justice Thomas, I think, still had student loans when he was on the D.C. Circuit or something, or the Supreme Court. So you ha- these, it can take time. And, uh, and it's not the worst yeah. debt to have. I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't compare to credit card debt. No, that, although credit card debt is at least easier to discharge in bankruptcy. This is true. Um, I mean, granted, you have things like IBR, uh, income-based repayment. There are ways to, to deal with student debt. Uh, but I think that that is a, uh, everyone's talking about this, that is sort of the next looming debt crisis, I think. We've been through the mortgages, we've seen credit card stuff. Well, the yeah. default, well, what is the student default rate? I actually don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm it's actually relative, it's not pretty a, high. I think. Yeah, it's definitely climbing higher. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, what's your advice to law students who are turned off by big law? Uh, 
but they do have this huge student debt. I mean, what's the, what are their alternatives? Well, if you were to go into government and were to stay there or in public service and you were to stay there for a good period of time, I think perhaps 10, 15 years, uh, then you would be able to avail yourself of various IBR and IBR-type programs. I mean, that's certainly one option. Okay. Uh, if you have the credentials, it's very difficult. Uh, your gig, legal academia, can pay reasonably well, but uh, that's even harder to get into than the law firm world. Uh, it's difficult. A lot of people, uh, including some of my co-writers on Above the Law, say think carefully in the first instance about whether to go to law school. Um, so maybe that's the threshold question as opposed to trying to figure out what to do once you're already in the midst of it. But you're also on record as having said that the law school the law degree mm-hmm. is an extremely versatile yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. The legal education is sure. an extremely versatile thing. Can you give some examples of non-law careers mm-hmm. that are really great for law school graduates? Uh, legal blogging, um, legal journalism. Uh, there are a lot of... Uh, one thing that's interesting about the legal world is because it is so large and lucrative, there, is, there are almost there's like a satellite... There are like satellite industries that orbit around the legal profession proper where you can make a quite decent living not necessarily practicing law. Uh, You have legal recruiters. You have people who work at uh, e-discovery vendors, legal technology, which my colleague Chris Danzig, who's in the audience, uh, covers. You have a lot of worlds that orbit around that center globe of the large law firms, the small law firms, the in-house legal departments. Uh, There are all kinds of... uh, We actually have a series on Above the Law of career alternatives where we look at different things that people are doing with their law degrees. We've talked about people who are law librarians. We've talked about people who had, who have some finance experience who uh, go work as in-house lawyers at accounting firms. Uh, some of the skills that lawyers are trained in can be applicable to the world of management consulting. Uh, there are a whole host of things that lawyers go into uh, with this degree. Of course, politics is, st- it, lawyers aren't quite as dominant in politics as they used to be, but politics is still uh, an option for uh, people. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of options out there. I think the difficulty is figuring out what options are actually going to service your debt if you have it. I, you know, one of the things I've often said, and you can react to this, um, to in, uh, incoming law students, is that every new law, every, every statute or ordinance that's passed that requires compliance yep. by anybody is a jobs program for <laughs> lawyers. Yep. Because they're going to need advice yep. on, and if you can become the expert yep. on that new particular law, and let's face it, you've got as much credibility as anybody else because it's a new law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you can make yourself that person and then, you know, put on a seminar, um, you know, read up on it, you know, think about it, um, and then give a seminar and attract some people and get a few clients, it can mushroom into pretty much a full-time job. Absolutely. Where you're, you're wearing your pajamas three days a week <laughs> and just working out of your den. So I, I know a number of former students, uh, of my former students, are doing pretty much that um, on a full-time I, yeah. basis. They're not getting rich, but they're making a decent living and they have a good lifestyle. I, I do think specialization is, can be hugely beneficial. Uh, oftentimes you hear about people who in law school figured out a particular specialization, sometimes based on an int- a field that they were in prior to law school or something that they took an interest in in terms of their course 
coursework. And if you're the expert on Dodd-Frank or you're the expert on Sarbanes-Oxley or you're the expert on the Affordable Care Act and you write a few pieces for uh, a law review or for the Daily Journal or the California Lawyer or another publication that are in that area and you establish yourself as the guru of that area, uh, it can be very good. Absolutely. A lot of times it's figuring out how to be two or three steps ahead of the curve. I'm sure that everyone now is thinking, oh, well, I should become an expert in the Affordable Care Act or what have you. But you want to be thinking two or three years ahead of time, okay, what developments are in the legislative pipeline? What things can I really bone up on? And if it has some synergy, let's say you worked in hospital administration before going to law school, and then you can become the expert in Obamacare because you know how to deal with uh, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement or what have you. Uh, That can be very invaluable. So a lot of times I tell law students and young lawyers, think about what you already have, what quivers you already, what arrows you already have in your quiver, and how you can deploy those in combination with your law degree. I want to loop back uh, to blogging and above the law in particular. You've said that you are particularly proud of um, the blog's coverage of the Dewey LaBeouf meltdown. Um, Is it true that associates and staff at at Dewey were actually looking to above the law to find out what was happening almost on an hourly basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were getting emails from them. You would see them posting in the comments. It was a situation where... But how were you getting the information? Uh, a lot of it was, in some ways, a cycle. So you would have sources. You would have friends there. You would have people you would know there. You would have, we would also receive emails and texts, which is often how uh, we get information, of course, working the phone. Uh, but a lot of times, and of course, also some aggregation in terms of seeing what other outlets had reported and weaving that into our, our, our content as well. Uh, but that was a situation where uh, the, the management was not being extremely transparent. And so a lot of times, people were coming to us to say, you're the only people who are actually telling us what's going on. In response, I mean, if, if, if I'm a partner at Dewey, um, if I'm a partner at any of these firms where you have, and you and other bloggers, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's fair to say Above the Law is right up there in terms of hot spots for these kinds of leaks, uh, uh, leaked plans of big law firms before they're, and by leak I mean, you know, made public before they're told, before they're disclosed to the employees. Um, I'd be pretty upset, and I would take measures for greater secrecy. Have you seen that happen? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, we've absolutely seen that. For example, we, uh, we used to often, if we received a memo by email or something, uh, we, we might post it on the site. So you would then get uh, emails that were distributed uh, not uh, in ways, I don't, I'm not even sure technologically how this works, you could not print the thing. You could not print a hard copy of the document. And if you tried to do a screen print, it would go black. So they were encrypted. Yeah, essentially. It was, they made it very hard to forward it or to disseminate it. But the problem is, anything that can be seen by the human eye can be leaked. So people would take their personal iPhone, not the firm-issued BlackBerry, they would go up to their screen, they would take a picture of the memo, and they would email us the memo. Uh, so essentially, any, or take uh, another example. Firms would increasingly use voicemail to make announcements. Well, if a junior associate at a law firm can do anything, it's transcribe. Uh, so these people would just type it out and say, here's a verbatim transcript of that memo from that managing partner. Uh, so 
in a way, there is this game of cat and mouse, and they develop one new thing, and we try to circumvent it. Of course, some of these measures may work to the extent that if they can introduce more and more barriers to dissemination, somebody may just give up and say, well, it's time to order Seamless Web. You know, like, so at a certain point, people may just give up. But information, you know, it's, it's the Silicon Valley cliche, information wants to be free. A lot of information has a way of working its way around boundaries, like water around objects. Can a big law firm in the real world operate in a highly transparent manner and succeed? Not completely transparent. Uh, I, we, would, we would totally acknowledge that. It's like... Uh, Think of what the president tried to do with respect to, say, uh, was, it, was it healthcare? You you have you can have a certain amount of transparency, but for very delicate negotiations or for key strategic decision making, sometimes you do need to go behind closed doors. Now. My job as a journalist is not necessarily to say, oh, okay, I understand. I'm just going to leave you alone. I'm still going to be trying to press my nose up against the glass or, you know, I don't want to engage in, you know, Rupert Murdoch hacking or anything, but I will try to do whatever I can that is legal and ethical to find out what's going on. Uh, and so the firms will try to keep that information confidential. But part of this is a problem of the large firms. When you have a group of people that is so large and they no longer have these strong personal ties, they feel a reduced sense of loyalty and they are more willing to share information, especially when they think that they are whistleblowing and they are calling attention to something they think is unfair or unjust within their institution. Well, it seems to me that some of the uh, the, the disgruntled partners, even, uh, even within the inner circle, mm -hmm. the inner governance circle of those really big law firms, that if they've lost and they don't feel a really strong sense of loyalty to the firm, that one of the things, one of the hammers they have left is to leak it. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's a chicken and the egg problem. Somebody might say to these partners, well, why are you so disloyal? Well, because the firm was going to de-equitize me or did de-equitize me or was going to boot me out of the partnership or was going to do other things to me. So you do have to wonder, where did the cycle begin in terms of people feeling less attachment or loyalty to particular institutions? Is it because they know that that law firm could actually ax them if it's no longer profitable to keep them on? Your current blogging vehicle is above the law, but uh, you first achieved prominence in the uh, blogosphere um, with um, a blog called Underneath Their Robes. Yes. <laughs> Which was kind of an irreverent and voyeuristic look at um, Article Three federal judges. Yes. Um, and the federal judiciary more generally. Um, now, at the time you started this blog, you were <laughs> an assistant U.S. attorney. Yes. <laughs> so arguing in front of federal judges. Yeah. Yes. Oh, uh, that's right. Um <laughs> kind of risky business. Yes. <laughs> so I did this under a pseudonym. I, I created an alter ego for myself when I was doing Underneath the Robes because I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office at the time. I, I blogged as an, a judiciary-obsessed young woman who called herself Article Three Groupie. Mm -hmm. And uh, A3G, as she was nicknamed by Chief Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit, uh, was obsessed with fashion and shoes, but also fabulous federal judges. Uh, I and think somebody described her as a boozy 
debutante. Yes, I think Jeff Tubin of the New Yorker. A boozy debutante who was also obsessed with federal judges. Yes. Um, So it was this interesting character. Initially, when I started out, I created this identity really just to cover my own tracks. So I'm male. I made her a woman. I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I pretended she worked at a firm. I was on the East Coast, so I would give the Post's West Coast timestamps. So everyone thought maybe she's an associate in Los Angeles or San Francisco. But as time went on, I just kind of found myself getting more and more into the character of Article 3 Groupie. Like, what is she doing? Oh, was she going on vacation? Oh, she broke a nail doing document review. Like, just, you would just kind of, in a way, I kind of got more and more, I was asking Richard Posner out on dates. Uh, so you just kind of became, I just became more and more into the character in did some he, ways. Did he ever say yes? Uh, no, actually. No. He turned me down. But uh, I think he regrets that. Um, I proposed, uh, well, actually, he, he and I did a podcast, uh, an event at the University of Chicago, and uh, I had invited him, actually, to a Bay Area eatery. I said, we should go to the French Laundry together. But he wasn't sure his wife would like that. Um, He's, he, he, he was a big fan of the, yes, uh, of the he, blog. Yes, he was. He was, as was Judge Kaczynski and you know, other judges. Well, yeah. uh, Judge Kaczynski, actually, uh, you, you actually had a contest <laughs> the hot, to, to determine the hottest yes. federal judge on the bench. Super hotties of the federal judiciary. There you go. And, and Judge Kaczynski nominated himself for said honor. And he campaigned. Yes. And, and he uh, won. He won. Well, he had, this was, we, this was in the early days of blogging, so we didn't have any kind of polling software. It was all done by email. So it was much easier to run away with an election back then. You mean by stuffing the ballot box? Well, no, he, he campaigned fair and square. I was getting emails from different people. He had you, a, you he think? Was, no, at least yeah. he had two of his sons. Okay. Um, but he also was on this list serve for international judges. And I think he sent this around because I was getting emails from Supreme Court justices in Canada from judiciary.ca accounts saying, I vote for Alex Kaczynski for hottest judge in America. Um, you know, these were judges from all over the world who were casting their ballots. So he won fair and square. There was no rule against campaigning. He's a judge. He knows the rules. Uh... Fair enough. Um, I, <laughs> and, you know, in fairness to him, in his younger days, he was on the dating game back in the 1960s. He was a very uh, handsome uh, guy. I mean, he's, you know, he's older now. He's, he has that distinguished gray hair. He gained some weight. Although he did lose it, though, to his credit. But, uh, you know. I mean, these are the things that I obsess over. This is why I enjoy my job. I'm very obsessed with these random details about federal judges. Ever tempted to restart uh, underneath their robes? It, it doesn't oh, not, sound like you're quite done. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I feel like I still, I still keep a, uh, a foot in that world. We cover a lot of judiciary-related things on Above the Law, so I still feel very invested uh, in that in that whole beat. Mm. But you're not going to, but you're not going to have another. Hot well, you know, um, I don't never say never. Um, I just don't know if I were to. I kind of want Judge Kaczynski to be haughty in perpetuity. Whereas if I were to have another contest, you know, he might be unseated by, you know, who knows? Jeff Sutton, Chief Justice Roberts. They were they were two of the other people who came in the top five the year that he won. So now you're not going to you know. say that Roberts campaigned for himself, though. Uh, no, he. I, I'm not aware of any camp, such campaigning. By right. he was not that he was on the D.C. Circuit at the time. He wasn't Chief Justice then. Um, how did, uh, I mean, now you, I, I believe, first were publicly identified with above the, uh, with uh, underneath their robes by Jeff Tubin mm-hmm. in The New Yorker. 
how did Tubin find out? Well, did he just put I was the actually together a question or? on my part. What happened was. Uh, Early on in the days of the blog, uh, I didn't know very much about technology, and I had engaged in emailing from both my blog account and my personal account at the same computing session. So essentially, people could receive these emails from me, open them up, and compare the IP addresses for David Latt and Article 3 Groupie, and essentially see that unless somebody was hijacking my computer, they were the one, they were one and the same. I had done this early on in the blog's history, and a few people, I think, probably had found out, but nobody told me or wanted to alarm me or, or threatened me or anything. But I think Judge Kaczynski, through actually a law school friend of mine, knew my real identity fairly early on. So he emailed Article 3 Groupie, and he told her, well, you know, uh, do you know about safe email? Um, and I said, what, Judge? Uh, safe email, meaning you can actually get a, soft, a software, I used Anonymizer, that will mask your IP address when you're trying to assume another identity online. So after that, I did that. I coughed up however much it was a month to use Anonymizer. And when I was doing blog business, I would use the software. And then I would go back to my, you know, change back into Clark Kent clothes. I would go back, to, I would turn it off. So then I was fine. I was safe. But my early indiscretion, I think, a year and a half into the blog's existence had spread to enough people. Maybe a few people who were just my friends kept it a close secret. But maybe a few told a few, told a few. I know at Above the Law how gossip can travel. And so I was starting to get emails in the blog account from people who had clearly figured out who I was. Uh, so where does this tie into Jeff Tubin? I had had lunch with him, and I had voluntarily revealed myself just in an off-the-record basis, uh, because I had become friendly with a lot of different journalists doing underneath their robes, and he was one of them. And at one point I mentioned, still in my blog disguise, that I worked in New York, that I lived in New York. And he said, oh, well, you should come to the famed Condé Nast cafeteria, and we'll have lunch, and I can talk to you about how I made the transition from writing about, from practicing law to writing about it. And so I thought, wow, the opportunity to talk to somebody who's one of America's foremost legal journalists. That sounds great. So I, I presented myself at his office. He was surprised to see me because he was still expecting this very comely woman. Uh, I had used a public domain line drawing f to portray Article 3 Groupie, and she was sort of like blonde with these sunglasses, and she just looked very sexy. And then, you know, here I am, this like five foot six Filipino guy. And when I showed up to his offices at the New Yorker, his first words were, before he even said hello or anything, were just, so you're a guy. Um, you know, he was just very floored. He, I wasn't who he was expecting. But we had a very nice conversation, and he gave me lots of advice and insight into how he made that transition. And at the end of the lunch, he said, well, if you ever want to reveal yourself, you know, let me know. Now, at the time, I was enjoying working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, so I said, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll keep my double life. Uh, thank you very much. But... Shortly after I had that lunch with him, it was in those weeks afterwards that I started to get these emails uh, from people. And at that point, I thought, well, this was sort of an early lesson in crisis communications, push or be jumped. Uh, uh, push, you know, push or jump. Like, should I uh, jump or be pushed? You know what I was trying to get at. Uh, in other words, could I control the narrative and go out on the pages of The New Yorker in an interview where I was voluntarily participating? Or could some other blogger just slap up screen grabs showing the IP addresses and proving that I, David Latt, assistant right, U.S. attorney, right, right. was also behind this irreverent blog? So I decided at that point, it's only a matter of time before this comes out, I should manage the narrative. So what 
did Chris Christie really say to you when hmm. yeah. you actually talked to him? Because well, at first, yeah, at first he didn't he didn't yeah. say anything. It was a couple days of silence. Uh, what happened was I, I really did mishandle this. I mean, in many ways, but I mishandled this for one thing. For of course, having this blog in the first place, I guess. But I also mishandled it because I didn't even give the office a heads up with respect to my unveiling, which was actually a violation, really, of the media policy. So even if I didn't blog about my cases or couldn't be uh, busted for anything of that nature, I certainly violated the office media policy where you have to run communications through the office mm. spokesperson uh, because I was here talking to The New Yorker about my blog. So I, Chris was caught flat-footed. He was at a press conference. on a, So the article in The New Yorker went online Sunday night. Monday, I go into the office, just kind of, you know, just like usual. I'm starting to get emails and texts from people like, what is going on? But I just kind of, I think I had convinced myself, I'd sort of bought into the fiction of Article 3 groupies so thoroughly that I thought, oh, no, I didn't write that. She did. That crazy Article 3 groupie, like, she's just off, you know, on frolic and detour, but that's not me. I think I had somehow convinced myself that this was a separate thing from my, my day job. If you live this kind of bifurcated life, you get very good at this kind of compartmentalization. Uh, so anyway, uh, I Chris was caught flat-footed. He gave a press conference Monday afternoon where he, it was on something totally related. I don't know, gun safety, I don't know. And somebody was like, what about Article 3 groupie? And he was like, what is Article 3 groupie? He had no idea what was going on, and it created this sort of this awkward moment. Uh, and he was, he was caught off guard at this press conference. And then eventually he figured out what happened. I mean, this was the early days of blogging, so one of his lieutenants in the front office had to actually print out 100 pages of blogging entries. It was not really the kind of thing that he was you know, reading this on an iPad or something. I mean, he actually, when I met with him eventually, he like waved this big sheaf of stuff at me. He's like, this. Um, and he shot that to Christie. Yeah, this person, exactly. That's how Chris read it, the entries in hard copy. Um, so he then went away for two or three days on an out-of-town trip. And I was very nervous because this was this had gone all over. This was in the New York Times, Washington Post, Associated Press. I was on the Drudge Report. You know, uh, saucy prosecutor Penn's blog about judges. Uh, I was all over the place. So sometimes when people ask me on Above the Law when I'm writing about some lawyer or law student in trouble, you know, do you know what it's like? to be the center of all this unwanted attention. I'm like, yeah, were you on the Drudge Report? Uh, now, granted, I, like many of our subjects, I had brought this upon myself, in a sense, because I was the one who kept this indiscreet blog, and I was the one who outed myself to the New Yorker. So in some ways, uh, I was to blame, really. I mean, I recognized that. But uh, at the same time, I, at, the, at the time, I very much wanted to keep my job, and I was anxious over what had transpired, because I think that I had blinders on. When you were blogging, I had really told nobody about this, so I didn't really have a reality check, somebody to say, you know, somebody might think that this is a little weird or that there's an appearance of impropriety or something, even if you're not blogging about your cases or disclosing confidences of the office, it is a little weird to be arguing before Judge Rendell and rating her as a judicial super hottie as well. Um, so there was this anxious week of waiting and all this press uh, inquiry, and I was basically no commenting at the time, and I uh, 
at the suggestion of more senior people in the office, they said, you know, you should go in to see Chris. So I called his his, uh, his secretary, Nancy, and asked to meet with him. And she said, he's not ready to see you yet. So I was like, oh. So um, I waited a couple of anxiety-filled days. And then I met with him on the Friday of that tumultuous week that the underneath the robes thing had broken. And I have to say, he was very, very gracious about it. Uh, I think a lot of other U.S. attorneys would probably have bounced me out of the office. Uh, I went in there. I realized what I that I what I'd done was wrong at that point. I, I, I at that point the reality check had sunk in. So I went into him and I and I was willing to offer my resignation. I said, "Look, I understand that I've put you in a very bad spot and I've created embarrassment for the office. Uh, if you want me to resign, I will totally go quietly, no problem." Uh, but he actually said to me, "Look, uh, David, you're doing great work as an assistant U.S. attorney." By this point, I'd shut down the blog. I'd put it behind a password, so it was no longer accessible. He said, the blog is shut down. You're doing great work as an AUSA. I talked to Maine Justice, and they told me, you know, the people down in D.C., Mm -hmm. and they said it's really my call as U.S. attorney uh, in terms of what to do with you. So let's just go back to the way things were. Um, So we essentially did. I mean, minus the blogging. Right. uh, But I went back to being an assistant U.S. attorney for a couple of months. Um, But what was interesting when I was doing that was I found I really missed that creative outlet of blogging. And I think that's why I decided... You had to choose between being a federal prosecutor and being a blogger. Yes. And you ultimately chose being a blogger. Exactly. A few months down the road, or actually it was probably more like weeks, through a law school classmate, I found out about this opening at Wong Cat. And at that point, I thought, oh, wow, a chance to, you know, blog full time. Um, And, oh, even, you know, with health insurance, you know, I decided I didn't want to be a 50 or 60 year old lawyer and wonder what if I had not what if what if I'd gone down that other path? I thought, why don't I just give this a shot while I still can? Um, your newest project is an online novel that is called Supreme Ambition, which is written from the perspective of a female Ninth Circuit clerk whose mother is a Filipina nurse. She really, really wants to clerk for a Supreme Court justice. Now, on the surface, you have to say that looks pretty autobiographical. <laughs> um, now, is that just because it's your first novel and you write about what you know about? Or do you think maybe you're not quite over the fact that you didn't get that clerkship with Scalia that you interviewed for? You know, probably a little bit of both. Uh, I, I thought I loved clerking. It was such a great experience uh, clerking on the Ninth Circuit. I urge law students who are interested in it to pursue it. Um, but at the same time, I also feel that, yeah, there's probably some kind of self-therapy going on here uh, in terms of working out these issues that I have through fiction. Uh, I was reading a very interesting article that actually my friend Robin, Robin Kane, journalist, recommended to me. It was a profile of Jane Pratt, uh, uh, who now has a website called ExoJane, but she was the original editor of Sassy and Jane, print journalist, very successful. But she has a very interesting theory about people. She has this theory that sometimes when some formative, sometimes traumatic, but generally really formative event happens to you, you will almost kind of stick at that age. That's, that's almost like your emotional age. Uh, and you, that, that stays with you for a very long time. And in some ways I feel that, even though I'm you know, however old that I, I am, in some ways I still feel like that 20-something the lawyer. Stop, the yeah, stop in a way. And I'm still kind of strangely uh, hung up on that, on, on not 
getting that clerkship. It was something that I just obsessed over. And in some ways, is it about the experience of clerking on the Supreme Court? Partly. It's an amazing chance to participate in history. It's an incredible credential. All of these things. But in a way, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, it's a little bit like my rosebud. It's that thing that you just think about and it maybe symbolizes, you know, I do have a therapist, Evan, so don't worry. I'm not trying to turn you into my therapist. I have a good you, therapist back You get there. what you behave for. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I feel like it is one of those situations where... Uh, it represents much more than just a really cool legal job, but it represents some kind of affirmation or some kind of, you know, like many law lawyers, law students, I was a dorky kid and I was not one of the cool people and maybe this was the chance to finally have this affirmation and this vindication and this, you're one of the cool people now. I don't know. In our remaining time, I don't want... Um to uh, let the law schools get off too lightly. <laughs> so um, let me ask you this. What do law schools need to do to adapt to changes in the practice of law? Now, big law is, of course, not the only thing. You've already pointed that out. There are many other things that law school graduates can do. Um, but there's no question that big law is still a prominent part of legal practice. Um, one thing that we hear a lot as law professors is that firms are really disappointed that entering law students, that first, uh, entering first year associates cannot do more practical things, that they don't know how to take a deposition, that they don't know uh, how to do a proof of service, that they don't know the most basic things, um, and that they're, they're essentially useless or they're, they're, we're, we're having to have the paralegals teach them. Um, I guess my question is, do you really think big law is serious about that in, in, the, in this sense? Do you really think big law wants the Yale Law School or the Chicago Law School or Stanford Law School to have mandatory classes in how to draft a lease yeah. or how to, um, how to uh, fill out interrogatories or probably the most important thing is which is how to unjam a copier. <laughs> do, you, do you really think no, that's I think what they it want? Is, I actually think it is somewhat uh, disingenuous. And I can, I can think of a couple of reasons for that. First of all, as you were suggesting, the firms like to train people in their own systems. And in some ways, they don't want you to necessarily be trained by your law school in their way. They want to teach you the cravath way of doing a deposition or of writing a letter or this is how we conduct discovery in this particular area of practice. Uh, second, uh, I think also the... Uh, the, 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 even people who want to have that kind of responsibility find it and who have some background, let's say you did clinical work or something like that, a lot of times you can't even get that work. So let's say you have uh, been at a firm for a couple of years and you've second chaired many depositions and you know the documents better than the partner, but the partner might still want to take that deposition. So you'll have people who are on the cusp of partnership, very senior associates or junior partners who will finally get to argue some low-level motion about 
about discovery. So when they say, well, you're not trained, well, it's like, well, even if you were trained, well, we still wouldn't let you do that because, well, we want to do that because, well, it might be the client wants us to do that. Or occasionally you're anecdotally about firms where the work gets sent upward because it has a higher billing rate attached. So uh, you have junior associates doing work that really ought to be done by paralegals and mid-level associates doing work that ought to be done by juniors simply because under the current billable hour model, it actually is more profitable for the firm to do it that way. So for those two reasons and a couple more, I think that it's not completely genuine when they say that. It may actually be an excuse for what you see in engagement letters sometimes where the client says, we don't pay for first years. But what do law schools need to do to make their students more competitive in the marketplace? I mean, what skills or you know, information, education do law schools need to impart to their students to better prepare them for the world that they are facing? Well, I certainly think that clinics are great. I did a clinic at Yale, Landlord Tenant Clinic. I got to try a case before I even graduated law school, a bench trial, but still. I think uh, clinics are great. The challenge is... They're expensive. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. A lot of deans point out that you can't just have a professor and 100 people in the room when it's a clinic. I was... When I was doing clinic, we were super, there were eight of us supervised by one clinical professor, a tenured clinical professor, was paid well, and he supervised eight of us, not a hundred of us. So clinics are actually quite expensive. So well, that's, not, why, that's why medical yeah. schools were always money losers. Yeah, and, exactly. And law schools, and law schools, as, schools Lang, as Langdell created yeah. them, were cash cows. M- yeah, absolutely. Because so because I, I think it's I think it is difficult to figure out how can you train people in a cost-effective manner. I mean, not to be depressing about it, but I think your dean, Dean Wu, has is onto something. Thing with respect to shrinking the incoming class. Uh, he's thinking ahead and thinking about how uh, can we make sure that our graduates uh, can all find good employment in an increasingly challenged economy. And when you also have a smaller class, you can and you, and you keep the resources roughly the same. People get more attention from faculty. I think that if you can afford it, it actually can be very good to uh, have a smaller, more intimate law school environment. Are universities going to have to start stop viewing law schools as cash cows? I mean, are, are law schools, in order to adapt to the future market, going to have to become much more like medical schools? And not necessarily that it's going to be three years of clinic, mm-hmm. but that there's going to have to be much more individualized attention, even in the first year. Um, and then there may have to be more clinics um, and more outplacements um, in the real world. Uh, But that's going to mean lower revenues Mm -hmm. because you're going to be able to bring in fewer students. That's going to require the universities then to view law schools no longer as revenue-producing machines, as ATMs, as they did in the past. Is that plausible? I think that's one thing that you might see, absolutely. I think that partly as the application numbers go down, uh, you're not having as many people paying tuition uh, to fuel these ATMs. Uh, so, And I think that some of the schools... Uh, Brian Tamanaha has written a lot about this in his new book on legal education. Uh, you're going to have schools that are going to have a hard time keeping their enrollment n- figures up, keeping their standing in the all-powerful U.S. news rankings, keeping statistics for their entering classes high. And so are we going to see the shuttering of a lot of the lower-tier law schools? 
Not for a while, but I think that over the long term, you might, uh, you might start to see that. Some of them are already having to dig deeper into their applicant pools, accept more people. Well, there was a cascade effect this year, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think Harvard right. took uh, yeah. 100 people off its wait list, yep. and that had an yeah. effect all the way down the line. Yeah, I think that you will, you'll see things like that, but not immediately. Nobody's going to, you know, and I don't under, you know, I, I, I see where they're coming from. This, these law schools are providing a living to the professors and the administrators, and I, some of them, many of them, former law school graduates. So I, I, nobody's going to voluntarily say, oh, you've convinced us, you crazy law school scam bloggers, or above the law, or the New York Times, or whoever, we're just going to close. I don't think people are going to do that, but uh, you might have a couple that just close because they can't make the ends meet. Um, what I think might actually be a salutary thing is if we saw a lot of schools perhaps shrink a little bit, uh, we saw the number of applications go down a little bit, maybe people who are really interested in the practice of law as opposed to people like me who just went because we had no idea what else to do. Uh, maybe if you have fewer applicants, somewhat smaller entering classes, and an improving economy, you might reach a point of new equilibrium where you don't necessarily have to shut down 50 law schools, but the thing becomes a more sustainable enterprise going forward. Last question, um, and, it is, and it is personal. You've been described in a number of venues, I think, as being a very risk-averse person. Um, now, I suppose that means more risk-averse than the average lawyer, and we know through social science studies that lawyers, that law students, incoming law students tend to self-select, that, that incoming law students tend to be among the most risk-averse of the professional school students. And then we make them, we law professors make them even more risk-averse because we want them to, to, to spot the worst-case scenario and, and, <laughs> and, and essentially act off of that on, on, on every issue that they, that, that they make. But on the other hand, leaving a job as a federal prosecutor where you could have become ultimately a federal judge. There's a lot of AUSAs who become magistrate judges and then district judges. Now, I don't, I don't even know whether you would have taken a district judgeship. Oh, no, but, I would have loved <laughs> Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, but you very easily could have been on that track or on the track to becoming uh, an, an assistant solicitor general or somebody uh, high up in Maine justice. Um, and you jump to become a professional blogger. <laughs> Where I don't believe there's tenure, <laughs> I don't believe there's salary protection under, as Article Three group would remind <laughs> us. Um, isn't this, a, aren't you kind of living about the least risk averse life that somebody with the credentials of your sort could live? I, th I, th I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> and it's funny, I don't know if I necessarily have a particularly keen psychological insight into why that is. Uh, I just took this jump, however many years ago it was, to do this for a living. And uh, 
I, uh, I haven't really uh, looked back that much. Uh, part of it, I think, is you can think of it, you can think of risk in different ways. On the one hand, you could think, well, it was very risky to leave an established legal career to go do something else. But there's also the flip side risk. There's the risk of being that 50 or 60 year old lawyer that I was talking about, wondering what if I'd gone that other route. And uh, in some ways, if you stay in, a, that prof- in the legal profession, even though something else might have been calling to you, you're taking a risk too that you're not going to live to regret it. So I don't know. Um, it's an interesting question. And whether or not I made the right decision, I guess we'll find out in the future. Well, it was a bit of a risk to come on this program and be so candid. David Latt, thank you for speaking legally. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.